Good afternoon, and welcome to Calvary's Way, a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. Calvary's Way, recorded live at Calvary Chapel, is a Bible study taught by Pastor Gib Allen. Today in our continuing study of the book of Acts, we come to chapter 1, verse 15. Here we see how the disciples deal with the suicide of Judas. Once again, as you get your Bibles, Acts chapter 1, verse 15. I was listening to a tape this week about a study of high school students, and it documents that 34% of high school students have contemplated seriously taking their own life. 32% said that they actually had made plans to do it, and 14% said that they have already tried to do it. That's a very high rate. Now, these young people were asked why they did it, and many said that they didn't know. They said, I don't know. And others said, well, feelings of loneliness, feelings of emptiness, and most of all, problems at home. The New York Times has a bestseller list of books, and there is a section in this bestseller list of do-it-yourself books. That is, self-help type books, do-it-yourself. The number one book in that category is a book called Final Exit by Derek Humphreys. And it's about creative ways to take your own life the dignity of dying and choosing the way to die, and it it has been number one or close to number one for many years now. Now, in the book of Acts, as the book opens, the disciples are confronted with a very interesting problem, the suicide of one of the twelve. Someone who has been with Jesus from the beginning, heard his teaching, was an eyewitness of his ministry, saw his miracles, yet ended up taking his own life. And now the 11 that remain are left with some very interesting problems. Jesus had promised that there was something special in store for 12, not just 11, but 12 apostles. And now one is defected and committed suicide, and so they're thinking, what do we do? So they gather together, and that brings us to verse 15 of chapter 1, where we left off last time. And it says, in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Now, In the four or five listings in the New Testament of the disciples, Peter is always listed first. He is the leader, even though most of the time he speaks first and thinks afterward. So Peter is taking a natural leadership role here among the disciples. And you know, there is nothing wrong with seeing Peter as the leader of the first group of apostles, even as he often was the spokesman for them during the time when Jesus was on earth in his earthly ministry. However, The idea that the authority of Peter was somehow supreme and that he handed it down in unbroken succession is unbiblical and it is wrong. In fact, Peter's leadership will diminish and then fade away. He becomes the apostle to the Jews. The apostle Paul becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. And James, the brother of Jesus Christ, becomes then the main leader of the early church by the time we get to Acts chapter 15. So Peter is prominent here, but then he fades rather quickly. So though he's prominent, though he is a leader, he is certainly not the Pope, not the first and only leader that people succeed from. So it says, and in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about 120. And that's not very many, is it? I mean, think of the impact that Jesus made. I mean, think of all the people that he healed, that he touched, those that saw his miracles, the literally thousands that heard his messages in Jerusalem and in Galilee, and the thousands that saw him in the triumphal entrance and the display on the Mount of Olives going into the temple. And there's only 120. That's not very big. I think most pastors would be pretty discouraged if that's all that happened to them after all of that. I mean, after that series of campaigns. 
You see, many people followed Jesus as long as he performed a sign, as long as he gave them food, as long as there was a miracle. John chapter 2, verse 23, it says this, And many believed in him there when they saw the miracles which he performed. Now, right after that, it says that Jesus did not commit himself to any of them because he knew all men. That's a very interesting verse. I mean, they were willing to commit to him. He wasn't willing to commit to them because they followed for the signs, you see, for the breadline and for the miracles. And there now is only 120 in the upper room. Interestingly, the average church in America today is less than 120. If you look at all of the churches across the board in America, the average is 120 or under. But that's where they started, which is 120, after three and a half years of ministry of our Lord. Now, it's going to grow, and of course that's normal too, for any work of God to grow by the agency of the Holy Spirit. They won't remain 120, but they start out that way. And one of the things that we want to notice about the book of Acts as we study it is how the church grows. It grows without mail-outs, without demographic studies, without fanfare, without mass telephone calling, without advertising, and without promotion. We will see that the church grows just by the preaching of the gospel, the teaching of the word, and the work of the Holy Spirit. Very, very refreshing. Now, before we look at verse 16, we need to be reminded of a promise that Peter had been given in Matthew chapter 19. Let's turn there now. Save Acts 1. We'll come right back. But in Matthew 19 and verse 27... It says, then Peter answered and said to him, now he's speaking to Jesus. He says, see, we have left all and followed you, therefore what shall we have? So Jesus said to them, assuredly I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now notice that it is 12, not 11. Now, Judas is going to split, right? In more ways than one. There must be 12 apostles. Now, also in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, John sees the city of God coming down out of heaven, and there's a wall around it with 12 gates, and the names of the gates are the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. But the wall also has 12 foundations, and the names of each of the foundations are the names of the apostles of the Lamb. So there must be 12 apostles. But now one is missing because Judas has hung himself. So that is what Peter is trying to deal with here now in Acts chapter 1. Let's go back there. So Peter stands up now. He thinks he's got it figured out. Verse 16. He says, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Now Judas should have guided people to receive Jesus Christ. Instead, he guided them to reject and to deny him and to actually remove Christ from the scene. Now, notice in this verse that Peter believed in the divine inspiration of Scripture, saying that it was the Holy Spirit who spoke through David. Now, the Scripture contains no clearer description of divine inspiration than that. God spoke through David's mouth. All Scripture is inspired, according to 2 Timothy 3.16, it is God-breathed, 
Theos Ponestos, God breathed. And if you ever get involved in a church or become a part of a Bible study where the leader says, well, you know, we can't be sure if this verse or this section is inspired, I would suggest that you immediately stand up and walk out and never go back. Why? Because once you start to say, I'll decide which part of the Bible is inspired and which is not, you have suddenly become the judge of the Bible rather than the Bible becoming the judge of you. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, not just part of Scripture. You see, if you tell me that only part of the Scriptures are given by inspiration of God, then I must ask you what parts are by inspiration and what parts are not. And then you are the authority who tells me what part I can believe and what part I can't believe. And the minute that God is no longer the authority, but you're the authority, then I'm in deep trouble. Beware of those who say, well, you know, you just can't believe all of the scriptures. The scriptures themselves say all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And here, Luke, in writing of what Peter was saying, declares that David was actually the spokesman for the Holy Spirit. But isn't it amazing what verses that we have a tendency to X out, given the opportunity? And we have all of the promises underlined. I do in my Bible. I have all of the blessings highlighted. But verses like 2 Timothy 3.12, where it says, Yes, all those who live godly shall suffer persecution. I notice that those are strangely unmarked. Well, verse 16, he says, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. So Judas had been called by Christ to serve in the ministry. He had been given a part in the ministry. He had been numbered and counted by all as being an apostle and as a leader among God's people. But Judas was a strange guy, wasn't he? I mean, he was with Jesus for three years, but he obviously had a very limited view of what the kingdom was all about. He ended up betraying the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. You know, on that one, though, we should not be too hard on him because there are a lot of people who sell the Lord for a lot less today. A lot less. Well, as we read the account, we realize that he regretted what he did, so he went back to the temple and he tried to undo his bargain. They couldn't care less, so he threw the 30 pieces of silver on the temple floor, and he went out, and he hung himself. Now, this is a shocking thing here, because we are talking about an apostle. Here's somebody who had the unique privilege of being with Jesus for three and a half years in the flesh. Something that only 12 were really able to do. They saw him, they listened to him, they touched him, and they ate with him, and yet one of them defected. It's pretty sobering, isn't it? It is a warning to us. Now, there is no doubt that Judas was an unbeliever. Judas was unsaved. In John's Gospel, chapter 6 and verse 64, there is a passage where Jesus says, there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. So inclusive in those who did not believe in him was Judas, who would betray him. Then in verse 70 of that chapter, Jesus says this, Did I not choose the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. 
Judas became one of the greatest and saddest examples of wasted opportunity. I mean, what a unique opportunity he had to hear and see what he heard and saw, and yet he squandered it all away. He wasted it. And Jesus says that he did not believe. Jesus also said that it would have been better for him had he not been born. I wonder what that means. That's pretty heavy stuff. Well, that brings us down to verse 18. It says, Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity. Literally, the leaders of the temple purchased it, but it was his money that was used, so actually he is the one who purchased it. Now, we know from Matthew chapter 27 and verse 10 and Zechariah 11:13 that this field was originally a potter's field. The field outside of every potter would be the place that he'd throw all of his marred creations, which because they had become hardened, could not be reshaped. So they would just throw them out in that field. And over the years, due to the accumulation of the broken pottery, the potter's field would be useless for anything but a burial ground. Now, what happened to the money for which Jesus was betrayed? It was used to purchase a potter's field, the useless field full of broken pots and dead bodies. And when you think about that in the analogy, the picture is powerful. The blood money of Jesus. But you see, the blood of Jesus, his work on the cross, was spent to redeem useless vessels, lifeless bodies like us. So verse 18 says, Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all of his guts, or entrails, gushed out. Now, as you can see, Peter's a country boy, and he just describes things without a lot of discretion. Just the facts. Now, it's interesting, the skeptics like to cry contradiction here, because in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 5, it says that Judas hung himself. Here it says that he fell and he popped. But there's absolutely no contradiction at all. Here's the scenario. Luke's hysterical note here calls attention to how Judas died. Matthew 27, 5 says that Judas hanged himself. But what happened is, is that he went to this field that had been purchased, the potter's field, and he hung himself on a tree. They believed that it was over a cliff. And when he jumped, the rope broke and he fell and he was disemboweled. And that is what happened. So he hung himself and he burst open. So there's no discrepancy at all. All we get is a fuller account of what happened when we compare both accounts. But what a horrible way to go. Verse 19, and it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem. So that field is called in their own language, Akildama, that is, field of blood. It was a field of blood, not only because Judas spilled his blood there, but also because the field was purchased with the blood money given to the betrayer of Jesus. Verse 20, for it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live in it, and let another take his office. The word office there means overseer. It is the word from which the office of bishop is taken. The idea is that Judas's office, in other words, he had been given an office of overseeing the flock of God. It was to be filled by another person. Judas had lost his ministry completely. Now, in reality, Peter is quoting from two different psalms here from Psalm 69.25, and he puts that together with Psalm 109.8, and putting the two together, he finds these prophecies concerning Judas. 
Now, this is the first time in the New Testament that we see Peter quoting Scripture, but notice his grasp of the Word of God. I mean, this man is from Galilee. What happened to Peter? I mean, this doesn't sound like the Peter we remember reading about even in the latter part of the Gospels. He's quoting the Scripture with great authority and with great memory. But remember now, he had 40 days when Jesus appeared and reappeared after his resurrection to him and opened his mind, and the Bible says opened his mind to understand the Scriptures. You see, Peter's knowledge of the written word came from hanging out with the living word, Jesus Christ himself. Now, no doubt he started searching the Scriptures, and as Jesus explained, Luke tells us, as Jesus explained the Psalms and the prophets and the writings of Moses to the disciples, it opened up their ears and their hearts to hear Messianic prophecy. So by this time, he quotes these Psalms as being Messianic prophecy. So he has a grasp of the scriptures, but also notice the view that he had of the Bible. In verse 16, he said, men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled. He says the scriptures have to be fulfilled. Now that is an exalted view of the Bible. When the scripture is written, it must be fulfilled. That is the same view that Jesus had. Jesus, 64 separate times, quotes from the Old Testament, always as the word of God. And he says things like, heaven and earth will pass away, my words will never pass away. He said, not one jot or one tittle will pass away from the law until everything is fulfilled. The view that Peter had of the scripture is the same view that Jesus had. Is that the same view that you have? It is amazing how you can run into people today and they say, you know, I'm a Christian and I believe in following Jesus, but I do not believe that the Bible is inerrant. Well, that means that you don't believe what Jesus believes about the Bible. And I don't think anybody can really take Jesus seriously and follow him seriously unless they take his view of the Bible seriously. And so we see that Peter had a grasp of the scriptures, but that he also had Christ's view of them. And I hope that as you grow in Jesus Christ, both of those things will mark your personal life. A grasp of the Bible that the more you read it, the more you see Jesus, and the more apt you are then to use it in given circumstances like we find here. And you know, there really isn't any excuse for any of us. Peter was not a seminary graduate, was he? He was just a fisherman. And secondly, his view of the Bible, which kept him through every aspect of life. May that be your view as well. Verse 21. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time, that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to the day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Now, these are the qualifications that Peter assumes that are to be set out. They had to have been with Christ from the beginning of his ministry, in other words, they had to be a contemporary, and they had to be a witness of his resurrection. So it was kind of a before and after witness. He was there before, he heard, he saw, and he would have known and seen and heard that he was crucified, he died, and that he rose from the dead. So you need a before and after witness. He was a witness from the beginning, and then he was a witness also of the resurrection. These were the qualifications they assumed for the replacement of Judas. And they proposed two. 
Joseph called Barsabbas, Barsabbas means son of the Sabbath, who was surnamed Justice, Justice means the righteous, and Matthias, the name Matthias means gift of God. So evidently there were only two men here out of all of this band of 120 who were qualified now to take this responsibility. Only two had been there the whole time and had also seen Jesus following his resurrection. So these two men were put forward and the others now have to decide between the two of them. Verse 24, and they prayed and they said, you, O Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which of these two you have chosen. Do you ever limit God in your prayers like that? You know, say, God, you know, here's two. You just got two to choose from. Lord, which of these two? Lord, which of these two women shall I marry? You know, I mean, what if it's neither? What if it's somebody else? What if it's the third one or the tenth one? Lord, which of these two cities shall I move to? Well, maybe it's not the one that you had chosen. You know, you can really make a mistake by limiting God to two choices. Some people believe that the disciples made a great big mistake here as well. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Well, they prayed and they said, You, O Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell that he might go to his own place. And they cast lots. Boy, an interesting way that they sought to determine the will of God, isn't it? Let's roll the dice. I mean, let's find out what God's will is here. Well, look what it says. And the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. That is, he became the 12th apostle. Now, the fact that he was accepted by the early church with no questions raised is indicated by a subtle change which occurs from here on in the book of Acts. Up until this point, the, the apostles are called the 11, but from here on, they're going to be called, and we talks about the 12 of them together, they're going to be called now the 12, so that it is clear that Matthias was accepted among them as an apostle. Now, many people have questioned the method for the choosing of one of these two men. You see, after all of these great spiritual steps now that they've taken, they end up rolling the dice to pick the winner. I mean, is this the way to choose an apostle? Is this the apostle that God chose? Now, let me say this about casting lots. It's certainly an imperfect way to discern God's will, but you know, it's much better than the methods that many Christians use today, relying on emotions, circumstances, feelings, and carnal desires. Often in the Old Testament, if they had something to decide, they would cast lots. They cast lots for the land when Joseph had to divide the land among the 12 tribes. And again and again, as you read the Old Testament, when they wanted to know the will of the Lord, they would cast lots. So the procedure here is typical Old Testament stuff. If a person wanted to know God's will, he would go to the high priest who had what was called the Urim and the Thummim in his breastplate. Now, the Urim and the Thummim were probably two stones. They don't know for sure, but they believe that there were two stones, one black and one white. And when asked a question, the high priest would offer a prayer, and then he would pull out a stone. Black meant no, and white meant go. Some even say that we get the term blackballed from this process. Blackball meaning a no vote against a particular project or an idea. 
Now, a specific example of an Old Testament character involved the casting of lots found in the book of Jonah when the sailors on the boat cast the lots. You remember, they cast the lots to see whose fault it was and uh, just before they threw Jonah overboard. Jonah 1 and verse 7. Now, many Christians today also go back to the typical Old Testament stuff when they try to discern God's will. They use what is called a fleece, borrowing an idiom from the account of Gideon in Judges chapter 6. Gideon had a decision to make, so he had this thing with a fleece. But the fleece in Gideon was intended to be a unique event, not a common practice. But often you hear Christians today talking about setting up a fleece with God. You know, I don't know what I'm supposed to do in this thing. I don't know if I'm supposed to do this. I don't know if I'm supposed to do that. And so they set up a fleece and they say, well, if this happens, they give God two choices. And they say, well, if this happens, then I will interpret that as the Lord wanting me to go to the left or to the right. That kind of a thing. Now, do you cast lots? Or do you put out a fleece today when you try to determine the will of God? Do you do that? I want to tell you, I don't cast lots to determine the will of God. I mean, if you come into my office and you say, well, you know, I've got to know whether I should move to Las Vegas or I should take that position in Atlanta. Hey, no problem. Let's just throw a couple of stones in the bucket here and pour them out and see what happens. No, we won't do that. Because you see, you never find this pattern ever, ever again after the Holy Spirit is given at Pentecost. Once the Holy Spirit came, this business of throwing dice or putting out a fleece to find the will of God was totally set aside. I mean, you never read of anything like this ever taking place again. Turn to Acts chapter 13. Once the Holy Spirit came upon the church, then the Holy Spirit began to speak to them, you see. Now the Holy Spirit can speak and direct them. Acts chapter 13 and verse 1, we read these words. Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menain, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord, in other words, as they were praying, and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed, and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. So you see that now, after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, now the Holy Spirit is the guide, not the casting of lots. And notice that they were praying together here. You know, the next time you have a decision to make or you have a struggle within, I would really encourage you to get together with other brothers and sisters and say, Would you pray with me about this? But you know, it amazes me how reluctant we are to really do that. I mean, we will talk to our spouses and we will struggle with ourselves, but rarely will we ask someone else to seek the Lord with us. But I want to tell you that the one who does will hear his voice in wonderful ways. We hope you have enjoyed today's edition of Calvary's Way with Gib Allen. Thanks again for listening, and we do hope you will join us again tomorrow as Pastor Gib teaches and we learn to walk Calvary's Way.